Ninth Story Studios, giving story a voice. This is Addison Peacock, and you're listening to The Wicked Library. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you're ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation? where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission. At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Warning. The Wicked Library is a horror fiction podcast created for a mature audience. Our stories contain graphic descriptions of pain, murder, violence, blood, betrayal, and inhumanity. Monsters win, people die, and hope is often shattered. There is also beauty, heart, catharsis, and raw emotion. Fear may be deeply personal, but we all share it. If at any time a story takes you to a place too dark, turn on the lights, press pause, or press stop. And always remember that unlike in the real world, these nightmares and your participation in them are under your control. Welcome back to the Wicked Library, and welcome to Season 12. This is Episode number 1201. I'm Daniel Foytek, and I thank you for listening. It's been a while since I've shared a new story with you. Ninth Story Studios has recently relocated to the deep, dark woods of Central PA. So I apologize for the delay in getting fresh Wicked Tales out to you all. But now that I'm settled into the ancient mountains of Appalachia, where the stars are bright, the woods are dark, and the voices of ancient things come on the wind, you can expect more regular content. I'm thrilled to present two wicked tales as we kick off Season 12. Going forward, all stories will be heard first by Patreon supporters, and then later shared with the full audience. A sincere thank you to those of you who are supporting the show. Without you, this show would not be possible. Our authors and everyone else involved in making the show Thank you for your support of this show and of independent horror fiction. If you're not yet supporting the show, you can do that at patreon.com forward slash wicked library. For as little as $3 a month, you can help make the show you love possible and get fun rewards. A lot of hard work and money goes into making the Wicked Library, and I really do rely on this support to help me pay the authors, voice actors, composer, and artists. In addition to knowing that you're a part of making the show possible, you can also get fun rewards like ad-free episodes at higher bit rates. And at higher levels of support, you'll get early access to our stories, bonus stories, and even more. You can support us at patreon.com forward slash wicked library. Now, today we present two dark tales told by Graham Rowett, with custom scores written by Nico Viteze of We Talk of Dreams. Now, let's get wicked with today's first dark and creepy tale, One Last Performance in Gibtown by Lamont A. Turner.
Whose idea was it to go to Gibsonton? Nicole asked as Brandon beat his head against the steering wheel with exaggerated angst. Let's go see the freaks, you said. It'll be fun, you said. It would have been fun, he moaned. If you'd told me your dad's car had an oil leak before we were already a hundred miles out. You should have told me you didn't have a car before you asked me out, she shot back, sounding a lot harsher than she had intended. Brandon waved his middle finger in her face, grabbed a vinyl poncho from the back seat, and pulled it over his head before pushing open the car door. The wind blew rain into his face as he jumped out and went around to the front of the car to raise the hood. Nicole saw plumes of smoke drift back to envelop the car and imagined the sound of raindrops sizzling on the hot engine. Even with the windows up, she could hear Brandon cursing. The hood went back down, and a moment later Brandon was back in the driver's seat, reaching around the seats to retrieve a towel. He rubbed his hands on the towel, leaving black smudges on the white terry cloth. There's oil all over the place, he said from beneath the green hood. I don't think the engine is fried, but the alternator belt got too slick and came off. Can't you just put it back? She asked, trying not to sound too naive. It's all chewed up, he said dejectedly. Besides, the battery's already dead. Maybe we could get a jump, she said hopefully. You see any other cars in the last hour? He snapped. We're out in the sticks in the middle of the night during a thunderstorm. Nobody's stopping for us. Besides, a jump would only get us a few miles before she died again. We're screwed. Nicole started tapping on her phone while Brandon lit a cigarette. Where are we? She asked, batting at the smoke. Brandon jabbed at the button on the door and quietly cursed himself for forgetting the windows had died with the battery. Somewhere on old US-41, he told her, opening the door just far enough to toss his cigarette out. Good luck getting anybody to come out in this mess at this time of night, though. Can you be more precise? I don't know. We're probably a few miles from the main highway. Find us on your GPS. She was still trying to determine their exact location when yellow flashing lights appeared behind them. A minute later, Knuckles appeared out of the darkness to rap on Brandon's window. Brandon and Nicole both jumped. They'd both been looking in their side mirrors and had seen no one approach. Brandon opened his door a crack and saw a giant in gray coveralls staring down at him. Broke down? asked the giant seemingly unfazed by the raindrops splattering on his bald head. Brandon, spellbound by the man's thick, asymmetrical features, could only nod. With his jutting brow and a chin that disappeared into a thick, bull-like neck, the man would have looked at home in the prehistoric man exhibit at the museum, but for his lack of hair. Lacking even eyebrows, he seemed somehow unfinished, like a Halloween mask just out of the mold. You picked a bad night. There was a tornado touchdown just a few miles north of here. Go ahead and put her in neutral, then you folks can go sit in my cab, he said, jerking a thumb the size of a cucumber at the flashing lights. Brandon nodded again. He turned the key in the ignition and shifted the car out of park before pulling another poncho from the back seat and dropping it in Nicole's lap. A few minutes later, they were both in the cab of the giant's truck, with Nicole sitting on Brandon's lap in the bucket seat. I thought you said no one would stop to help? Nicole chided. I'm not sure anyone human did. Did you get a look at that guy? Brandon asked, pulling back her hood so he could see her face. I could only see he was big, she responded. He has to be at least seven feet tall. I almost tripped over his boot when I got out of the car. Brandon said. I could have got in it and sailed to China if I put a sail on it. The guy must have a hell of a time walking upstairs. Despite the rain, it took the man surprisingly little time to hook up the chains and get the car onto the bed of the truck. Before Brandon and Nicole could decide if the monkey skull on the dashboard was real or just a plastic prop, the man was climbing into the driver's seat. What's wrong with her? He asked wrapping a big hand around the shifter. 
She talks too much and bites her nails, Brandon quipped, changing his answer to alternator after getting elbowed in the ribs. I know a good mechanic over in Gibtown. He won't be open for a few hours, but there's an all-night diner right across the street. The giant responded, ignoring the joke. Gibtown? Is that far? Nicole asked, shifting her weight on Brandon's bony lap. That's what the locals call Gibsonton, Brandon told her. Looks like we'll be making it there tonight after all. What do you folks want to go there for? Asked the giant, his deep voice expressing genuine puzzlement, as though they had just told him they wanted to spend the night in a public toilet. I was wondering the same thing, Nicole said, digging her heel into the side of Brandon's shin. I heard there's a bar where all the sideshow performers hang out, Brandon said, giving Nicole a jab in the thigh. I thought I might try to interview them for an article I'm planning. If you're looking for freaks, I can take you someplace where there's all kinds of them, said the giant. It's just a few blocks down from where we're taking your car. Brandon expressed his enthusiasm for the idea, and then the conversation died as the driver turned his attention to the road. The headlights barely made a dent in the blackness, leaving Brandon with only Nicole's weight on his legs to distract him from the sound of the rain pounding on the roof of the cab in a constant staccato, like the tapping of a thousand skeletal fingers. If he had been in his own vehicle, he would have had the radio at full volume and a cigarette between his lips, but he was merely a passenger, and the giant didn't seem to mind the noise. He sat hunched over the wheel, squinting at the darkness beyond the windshield, while Nicole's attention was fixed on him. She studied the man, mesmerized by his ugliness. The patter on the roof subsided as they drove out of the storm and passed the sign identifying the border of Gibsonton. The giant took a detour off the highway onto a narrow road, strangled by the overarching trees. Branches came to life in the yellow light, strobing atop the truck, and clawed at them as they passed. Weeds reached up from cracks in the pavement to rake the bottom of the truck as they rolled over them. Brandon wanted that cigarette now more than ever. What's that up ahead? Nicole asked, drawing Brandon's attention from the swamps on either side of them. They were coming upon a fence stretched across the road. As they grew closer, Brandon saw the road widened and ended just before an iron gate set in the middle of a fence about eight feet in height. Did you make a wrong turn? Brandon asked the giant as the truck slowed to a stop. Out, ordered the man, opening his door and jumping out onto the road. Nicole twisted around to search Brandon's face for some clue as to how she should react, but saw only confusion reflected in his eyes. Brandon opened his mouth to speak, but was cut off by Nicole's scream as the passenger door was thrown open and she was yanked from the cab. Out, repeated the giant, reaching back in again to pull Brandon out. He landed hard on his shoulder next to Nicole, who was already scampering to get up and away from the big man. What are you doing? Brandon shouted, clutching his arm. You said you wanted to talk to the freaks? Replied the giant. Well, here they are. He stretched out his long arm toward the gate, guiding Brandon's gaze to the rows of stones behind the iron bars. Brandon tried to rise, but a huge hand shot out and wrapped around his throat, slamming his head against the side of the truck. Brandon dreamed he was being stabbed in the face by a thousand tiny daggers. Waking, he opened his eyes and immediately raised his left arm over his face to block the rain. He tried to push himself up off the ground with his right, but couldn't get it to move, so instead he rolled over on his side to face the road. He was alone. The wind whistled through the trees, mocking him as he shouted Nicole's name. He shouted it again and again, but Nicole did not answer. Finally, managing to get his knees under him, he tried to stand, but a sharp pain in his head forced him back down. He lay there, panting, 
unable to fend off the rain that pelted his face while waiting for the pain to subside. As it faded to a dull ache, he rolled over and crawled to the gates of the cemetery. Pulling himself up on the bars, he noticed a light off in the distance. He hung there, squinting at the yellow square of light floating in a sea of black. It was coming from the window of a fishing camp on the edge of the swamp. He knew he had to get to that house, but he would have to cross the cemetery. He slowly let go of the gate and tested his legs. They wobbled a bit, but he could stand, and as long as he didn't try to move too quickly, the pain in his head was tolerable enough for him to walk. He tugged on the gate, and it had started to creak open when he lost his footing and stumbled back. As he steadied himself, the wind howled and blew the rain back into his face. The gate flew open, clanging against the fence. Brandon took a deep breath to clear his head, and then staggered into the cemetery. His feet sank in the soft earth as he wandered between the stones, heading for the light. Under other circumstances, he would have been eager to investigate such macabre surroundings, searching for material for one of his articles on the arcane and outre. But now all he could think of was finding help. God only knew what that monster was doing to Nicole. He wondered how long he'd been unconscious and how far the giant could have gotten. Maybe it was already too late. The rain slowed, coming in fits now, but the wind was unrelenting. It pushed back against him, striking out on behalf of those whose graves he trod upon. His head throbbed, and the pain returned in flashes that blurred his vision and took away his breath. He collapsed on the steps of a crypt a few feet from a stone obelisk adorned with bas-reliefs of circus clowns. In the dim light of the distant camp, they seemed to move, cavorting around the monument as though performing one last show for him. He shook his head and looked away, but when he looked back, expecting to see a static sculpture, he found none. The clowns had vanished. He walked over and ran his hand down the surface of the smooth stone. There were no markings other than an inscription at the base reading, In memory of those who lost their lives in the Midland Fire of 1932, may they find the joy in the next world that they brought to others in this one. Midland Fire? He had heard of it somewhere. He stared at the inscription trying to remember. Yes. He had read about it while researching an article on circuses in the Depression era. A circus tent had gone up in flames. As the fire spread, rather than rushing to safety, the clowns had continued their performance to calm the children in the audience while they were led out to safety. By the time the last of the children were out, it was too late. The tent came down, smothering them in a blanket of flame. The fire then spread to the stables and the trailers inhabited by the sideshow performers, many of whom were not able to escape due to their physical limitations. Almost 50 performers, as well as two lions and several horses, died that night. He traced a crack in the stone with a trembling finger. The stones around him leaned in the tall weeds, the inscriptions worn away along with the memory of the people lying beneath them. Lives erased by neglect. Nobody had been here in a very long time. Brandon fell to his knees and began sobbing, like a drunk on his tenth shot of bourbon. Nicole, the pain in his head and numbness in his arm, the wind and the rain, it was all too much. He couldn't go any further. He was done. He curled up in the mud at the base of the monument the numbness in his arm spreading throughout his body. Then, somebody laughed. Brandon looked up to see a clown standing on the steps of the crypt. A gust of wind threw muddy water into Brandon's face and slammed the cemetery gate shut, but the balloons in the clown's hand did not waver. The clown's laughter grew louder, more manic. Other voices joined the chorus as shadowy figures stepped out of the darkness. Some were clowns, 
Others scurried forward on their hands and loped over the stones, dangling extra limbs. A thing with no limbs at all flopped in the mud, propelled by the undulations of its torso. Brandon screamed, and the light in the distance went out. Brandon awoke with a light in his eyes. Looking past it, he saw the tow truck driver standing over him. I thought I killed you, said the giant. Guess your head is harder than I figured. He clicked off the flashlight and stuffed it into the pocket of his coveralls. Then he reached down and grabbed Brandon by the shoulders, lifting him up to stare into his face. What the hell are you screaming about? You might have gotten away if you'd kept your trap shut, he said, giving Brandon a shake before casting him back down. Where did they go? Brandon muttered, looking about. The giant looked around too and, seeing nothing, let out a long, mirthless chuckle. Guess I must have scrambled your brains, he said. Don't worry, you won't have to deal with it much longer. Brandon watched the giant kick over a tombstone with his oversized boot. He picked it up and raised it over his head. Brandon covered his face and waited for the stone to come crashing down. Something snarled and then roared. It echoed through the cemetery, rattling the gate. A brass urn fell from a niche in the wall of the crypt, and the weeds bent down and parted as the roar grew louder. Brandon lowered his arm to see the giant. The stone still over his head had turned to stare at something approaching from the direction of the road. What the hell? It ain't possible! He shouted before hurling the stone. It obviously had no effect on whatever was out there, for the big man turned to run. Brandon leapt up and ran as well, going as fast as his trembling legs would allow, weaving around the gravestones. The giant had less luck. He stumbled as his boots collided with the stones hidden in the tall grass. As Brandon overtook him, he saw the man go down. The roar was replaced by the sound of the man's screams as Brandon passed the last graves and found himself on a gravel path leading to the camp. As he got closer, he saw the bed of the tow truck jutting out from behind the cabin and knew he would find no help there. He might, however, find Nicole. Reaching the cabin, he peered in the window, afraid he might find the giant had accomplices, but the room was empty. A large pot simmered over the fire in the hearth before a long table. In the light of the flames, he could see straps hanging over the side, dangling above a large metal tub. Finding the door unlocked, he crept in still wary of the possibility of someone lurking in the next room. He saw a set of knives of various sizes arranged neatly on a tray beside the table. The table itself was metal and had a groove along the edge with a hole in the corner over the tub. He stared at the dark stains in the grooves and the scratches on the surface and swallowed the bile forcing its way up his throat. He found Nicole tied up on a bed in the next room, unconscious but alive. The cell phone still in her pocket had just enough power left to call the police. Brandon watched the workman he had hired put the new cemetery gate in place. Behind him, another crew was replacing the stones in the newly mowed yard, straightening them after cleaning them up scraping away years of mold to give names back to those resting below them. In some cases, records had been consulted and new stones were erected. Brandon's account of his escape from the man the press had dubbed the Cannibal Killer had become a bestseller, resulting in a fortune in book sales and a lucrative series of lectures. The people buried in the cemetery had saved him putting on one last performance in an effort to spur him on, and then saving him from the certain death at the hands of the giant after their efforts to revive him had failed. Keeping their memory alive was the least he could do. As for the giant, all that was ever found of him was a foot, still lodged in an oversized boot. 
Nobody was able to identify for certain the animal that had gnawed that foot off, but Brandon was certain if the tooth marks had been properly examined by someone with the proper experience, it would be revealed that the giant had been killed by a lion. Up next, we dig deep into the darkness with the quiet ones intent on nurturing the most delectable soil by T.M. Morgan. I lean back on the grass and watch them. A few wear overalls. One guy walks by wearing a bearskin smock and nothing else his white, hairy ass exposed when he passes. Some carry pails of dark soil. Like my dad, I bet none have ever been near a farm. I feel the urge to grab one and shake sense into them, but they are bedazzled. The mold has turned them into these strange agrarians. It's obviously a lot more complicated than that, but the frustration is hard to stifle. Or it's not frustration at all, but fear. Nearby, a man and woman, each clothed in dirty jeans, t-shirts, and green kitchen aprons marked with whole foods in white letters, tidy a spot they've dug and filled with potting soil. A wheelbarrow rests to their side, a worn shovel leaned against that. The mound of darker soil bumps up from the grass. They rest their weight on their tibias, knees bent, and gaze in reverence at their creation. I see no seedling. Maybe they have only begun to carry out their plan. The woman is young, pretty, dirty blonde hair, freckles. Hard to say if she knew the guy before this, or if they became enamored of the same spot. On the way back to the office, I stop at a corner store for some smokes. Better watch out, the clerk says in his thick New England accent, handing me the pack. They say the molds got into the tobacco crops. Yeah, thanks, I say. Thing is, I know the risks, just like everyone else. Not that it will matter much soon enough. Besides, cigarettes are making a comeback. Outside, leaned against his bodega wall, I taste the sweet relief of the tobacco leaves letting the smoke swirl in my mouth before inhaling all the way down. There's something thrilling about that tartness, even more so than the nicotine. A man strolls past me with potting soil caked to his face, as if he'd been eating it, and nods as my cloud of smoke drifts into him. His hands are heavy with dirt, too, dark half-rings under the fingernail tips, while the nails themselves are nearly black with the mold under the surface. I take my time walking home. The weather is perfect. Such a blue sky, lots of sun, a touch of breeze. The sidewalks are full. Kids ride their bikes and run, play ball. A grown man does somersaults in the grass at Proctor Park. This is the first stage which some people have remained at with no further symptoms. Not yet, anyway. It includes a rejuvenation of what people have been calling loving nature, akin to loving kindness. If this were the only way it affected us, we might call it a silver lining. But it is not. And we do not. At my building, I find the three Taylor brothers. There used to be four passing a basketball to each other in front of the stoop. Bounce pass, quick throw, too high, into the street. An oncoming Tesla quickly slows and stops, the driver asleep. Seth, the oldest boy, jaunts after the ball, and the car drives itself off when he's clear. Hey, Mr. Dallant, they say, nearly in unison. Boys, how's your mom? Josie Taylor has had sad eyes whenever I've seen her the past week. Irises like black cups of coffee. She's on the phone, says Reggie. 
Your dad again? It's not the sort of assumptive thing I'd ever say to their mom, but the boys don't notice. Don't know, he says. She's crying, so probably. I shrug, hiding the concern. The boys go back to passing the ball, and I slip up the steps. The building foyer smells musty. Not a good sign. I'd call the landlord about it, but he never did anything even in the best of times. At the third floor hallway, I put an ear to the tailor door. Complete silence. The urge to knock is so strong that I clench my fist. My intentions are impure. I'm thinking about taking her in my arms and kissing her. I head back up the next flight to my fourth floor apartment. Cable news is once again dominated by angry talking heads. That hasn't changed through this slow-moving apocalypse. For some reason, the primary reaction I have when people discuss it is shame. I want to hide from it. And wherever I turn, it's there. So I fill myself with the idea that though everything is fucked up, I can make the world small, as tiny as the crevice in cupped hands. Yes, the threat is real, an older blonde woman shouts. But the crazed reaction of Democrats is just another of their socialist attacks on capitalism. Her eyes bug out so weirdly that I think she must be on acid. The liberals on the panel jerk back in faux horror. This isn't global warming, Lana. One of them, a young Latina, says drolly, not realizing she's just unintentionally shit on global warming. An older man is wearing a straw hat and overalls on otherwise bare shoulders. Maybe they needed a token moldy, but he looks ridiculous. A short length of hay even juts from the corner of his mouth. I change the channel before more shouting erupts. Discovery has a show about the meteor and the scientists who first investigated it. Poor bastards. After a commercial break, they display projections for the fate of humanity. The curved graph bends sharply upward, its peak coinciding with a date within the next two months. I turn off the TV. Two snowbirds tweet in the tree next to my kitchen window. The little kitchenette table for two pushes against the low frame, a rusted fire escape just beyond. I watch the white-breasted songlings hop from branch to branch and wonder if birds have empathy and decide this is doubtful. My cell vibrates. Mom. I let her go to voicemail. Last we talked, Dad had taken to sleeping on his dirt pile. I quickly stream some music. It shuffles to my classical channel and starts right off with Debussy's Prelude to the Afternoon of a Fawn. It transports me far and deep until I imagine I'm looking through the eyes of one of the birds. The ground glows red with squiggly lines which I realize are the heat signatures of worms burrowing through the topsoil. Wind currents rustle the leaves. The scent of pollen is overpowering. The piece ends so softly that I linger in my meditative state. My tea kettle's whistle alerts me back. I'd forgotten I'd turned on the burner. Chamomile tea made, I grasp the cup with both hands to feel the warmth. The brown splotches under my thumbnails are right in my face. Sip. Turn to look outside. I need a lemon wedge for this tea. More music and meditation. Another cup of tea after. My heart beats so fast I can't help but focus on its intense pulse. The birds, I think, and the wind. The pollen and bees. Seeds and those curling sprouts. I put my teacup in the sink and drop the lemon wedge into the coffee can on the counter. A peek inside. The growing heap will be a good start to my compost. Mom coughs rather than cries. It's an involuntary reaction she's always had. Through the phone, though, it's hard to tell the difference. James, why can't you come home? I gulp down whatever my first thought is. No planes are flying, Mom. I can't drive across the country. It would take me weeks. Gas stations are closing. It's not like it used to be. What about a bus? 
Sarah Watkins' daughter took a bus home from Chicago. Do you need money? I can wire some to you. Wire some money? I wonder if banks still do that. On the street below, the Taylor boys are screaming. Not in a fighting way, but in a pubescent boy ADHD way. Their easy rowdiness makes me smile, though I'm trying to be distracted. No money, Mom. Look, I'm in Boston. The bus would take weeks, too. Any driving would be risky. I wish I could come. I know you need my help with Dad. Her sigh nearly breaks me. It points an accusing finger at me. <sighs> I understand. To be honest, it won't last another week anyway. The silence carries a heavy weight. I want to talk to Dad. No. What I want is to hold his hand, look in his eyes, and shake him. Mom slouches at her kitchen table. Without her even speaking, I can picture it. Mom, I love you. I'll try to figure something out. She pauses. These long silences from her are unusual. Her overeager nervousness always has her mouth moving, filling every empty space. I taste dirt, James. As soon as I wake up in the morning, like during the night someone has dribbled it into my mouth. She starts to cry quietly. My own tongue has tasted like it's slimed with mud for the last few days. It's made eating a chore rather than a pleasure. Have you tried planting your teeth? What? She says incredulously. Brushing. I'm quick to snap back, realizing my slip. Brushing your teeth. That should help. Another excruciating pause. I wonder if she's blanking out as well. The two of us, grasping in the dark for each other, three thousand miles apart, and our words carried on digital currents. Such a long break in conversation, an emptiness akin to listening to the wind. Mom? I love you too. Go on now, I've taken up too much of your time. Before I can answer, she calls out, Bruce! No, no, don't lay in it! Please, dear, come... The line cuts off. It's like reaching from a boat edge to a drowning person, only to watch them disappear into the waves. Calling back would do no good. Mom has carried the curse of empathy her whole life, and she's decided to let me be. To let each of us be. Around ten o'clock, a knock rattles my door. Not loud, not belligerent, but timid, like tree limbs brushing against the side of a house. In the peephole... Josie Taylor bites her lip and tries not to stare directly ahead. I take several deep breaths and open the door. She wears a white, sleeveless blouse with a rounded black collar. Tight jeans grip her legs all the way to the ankles. Her head bends down so that her black hair hides her face. My gut tightens and then releases, fast, in spasms. James? I swallow hard. Josie, do you want to come in? She hesitates, though with obvious agitated energy bustling through her. Yes. I let her go first down the short hallway to the living room. My apartment isn't much. Kitchen opposite the front door, short hall, tiny bathroom, living room, bedroom. My furniture is an accumulation of things inherited and purchased items made of thin fabric over cheap wood. She takes the same spot on the couch she did the last time she was here, and I plop beside her, as I did before. Listen, she says, glancing up with those fathomless eyes. I've missed you. I'm sorry I haven't responded. I understand. She shakes her head. No, you don't. Especially with everything going on, it was cruel of me. I said things in the heat of the moment that I know gave you a different impression. It's just... You don't need to explain. I take her hand. Her fingernails show brown streaks underneath them. I know for a fact they weren't there the week before, when my lips kissed her fingertips. It occurs to me that one of us might have infected the other. But that doesn't bother me. The mold is in everything now. 
One way or another, it'll get all of us. I came to ask you something, though. Your opinion. Sure. Anything. I say. Ben. She immediately begins to cry. I squeeze her hand. So soft, like a bundle of moss. I still have him in the apartment. I wanted to know if I should take him somewhere else. Outside, I guess. What does Jimmy think? It still feels awkward to say her husband's name out loud. Jimmy can't face it. He won't travel back here. He says it's too difficult, that the interstates are in bad shape. I said, but these are your sons. I think maybe he doesn't have long himself. I nod and don't reveal my own shame at using the same excuses. That's hard then. Could I see Ben? Would you allow that? A shiver runs down her arm and transfers to me. It's a kinetic shock, like when someone has shuffled across carpet and pushed out their finger, except this is more a slow wave, sensual, almost communication of a kind. We both sense the connection. Both see the brown splotches under our nails shift and swirl. What's going to happen to my boys? What, James? I've no one to give them to. Do you understand? I was going to ask you. We embrace. I would say I let her sob on my shoulder, but I'm doing plenty myself. Her neck bends so gracefully, lilting, soft. The scent of lavender wafts from her hair. Her body heat flames against my cheek. We'll figure something out. Let's see what we can do about Ben. I stand and lead. Her renitent weight fights me, but only slightly. It is less hesitation than weariness. Out my door, down the stairs. The landing's bulb phasing with a tense strobe. A mouse skittering in its magical way down what must be giant steps. Thank you, she says when we are at her door. It is not so much a thank you as a sigh of relief. What are the boys doing? In bed. Despite appearances, I managed to be a good mom. I kiss her. There's little passion in it. More compassion. It soothes both of us, like something needing to be done and put out of the way. She slides in her key. A gentle click. We're inside. Her layout mimics mine, but her furnishings are one economic class higher. Faux leather tables that don't wobble. Bookshelves that hold actual books rather than junk. She's right. She has been a good mom, despite everything. Her apartment is tidy, and even inviting. The brothers think the youngest, Ben, went with their dad to visit his family. Her world is a shambles. Yet to them, she's still the best mom. In here, she says. The one difference in her apartment compared to mine is a second bedroom to the left of the living room. The boys must share a bedroom. I've never seen her bedroom, and being let in this way is comfortably intimate. Once inside that sanctuary, I'm happy to find it's packed with personality. A thin bed cover shows a woman in meditation, each of her chakra points glowing a different color. Beads hang on the wall as a substitute to a headboard for the bed. Three lava lamps bubble and cycle through different colors. Bookshelves otherwise fill every wall, crammed with books, incense burners, wooden and bronze sculptures, smiling cement Buddhas as bookends. The smell is Nag Champa and sage. On the open window's ledge, a foot-tall plant grows from a pot, plain-looking, with several tendrils of thin green leaves. It is not any kind of house plant. That's him, she points at the plant. I suspect Ben gets a lot of sunlight in this east-facing window, and that he will outgrow that pot quickly. Tears fill the edges of my eyes. I hope the transition wasn't painful. The news keeps saying it's not, but how would the doctors know? The stages from flesh and blubber to cellulose and chloroplasts don't allow the victim any detailed narration. 
At that point, a gelatinous cocoon has wrapped them. I release her hand and walk to the windowsill, putting out a finger to stroke one of Ben's leaves. Oh no! She moves quickly to grab my wrist. He's poisoned sumac. The image of her peeling away the layers of the shriveled cocoon to find the sapling inside and then fill the pot with soil and gently mound it over his roots. It's too much. To think that she's been looking at him as she falls asleep and then wakes again each day. We embrace like a couple beside their infant's crib. Tomorrow. It's all I can manage to say. Do you want to sleep here? A wave of shame again. It's made me impotent. Hadn't heard about that one in all the reports. She grasps my hands. Again, that current between us. Just sleep. Let me curl into you. I'm gone before the boys wake for school. How and why school still goes on is a mystery to me, though I still go to work. Well, did go to work. Starting today, there isn't much sense in it anymore. Josie arrives at my door with Ben once they're gone. I make coffee. Ben sits between us atop my little kitchenette. I can see why she smiles rather than cries in his presence. It's like a wave of energy emanates, as if he's still there somehow. I pull up the text message my mom sent early this morning and show it to Josie. She gasps. Is that your dad? I work up a half-smile. Yes. Not sure where Mom got that glass case. It reminds me of the one from Beauty and the Beast. Josie actually laughs at that. Right, the cursed rose. She hands me back the phone. I take another look at the picture. A stiff dandelion, head thick with puffed seeds. I can make out my mother's reflection in the curved glass. Phone pushed close. He must have woken in the night and half buried himself in his mound in the yard. He did her a favor, she says. Such innocence in her face. I again picture her pulling apart Ben's cocoon to plant his seedling. Are you okay? Funny. Since I saw the text, I'm relieved. It's just that Mom's alone now. I feel like I should be upset about that. She knows how to take care of herself. Her tone implies more hope than certainty. We take our time with the coffee. No rush. Another sunny day, blue as an ocean above us. The songlings dance in the tree again. Once we decide to leave, I carry Ben. And once we reach the store, we switch, so that I can carry the shovel and bag of potting soil we've purchased. Her choice is Delaney Park. Even though it's a half-hour walk, it passes by in an instant. Suddenly we're crossing within the line of trees, taking careful steps through the undergrowth and making our way to a little clearing with ample sun. Do you mind digging? I take the shovel. Soon we're bent over Ben's spot, each patting at the mound. It's so soothing, that feel of cool soil. The important part is to craft the perfect shape. When my hands are thick with wet black dirt, I wipe them on my t-shirt. Josie chooses her pants. We only used a third of the bag. We should make another mound, she says excitedly. I can only smile because she's right. I dig another round hole. She pours the soil in carefully. That sun is perfect, directly overhead now as warm as the womb. When she starts patting down the dome of soil, I kneel and help. Our shadows shift around us, even though no time seems to pass. Each time I touch the dirt, I stop to admire the work, then must touch it again. A worm wriggles through the grass near my leg, as delicately as possible, with my fingers barely grazing its flesh. I pinch it up, scoop a cubby into the soil, place it inside, and smooth over the top. That is so beautiful, James. Yes, I think. It really is.
Thank you for listening to episode number 1201. Today's authors were Lamont A. Turner with his tale, One Last Performance in Gibtown, and T.M. Morgan with his tale, The Quiet Ones, intent on nurturing the most delectable soil. Today's stories were told by Graham Rowett. I'm Daniel Foytek, and I've been your host today. If you'd like to find out more about my work, you can check out ninthstory.com, victoriaslift.com, or follow me on Twitter at dfoytek. Our resident composer and executive producer is Nico Vitese of We Talk of Dreams. Artwork for today's episode was created by Greg Schaefer. Our producers are Meg Williams and Daniel Foytek. To find out more about the Wicked Library and our other shows, visit thewickedlibrary.com and ninthstory.com. If you'd like to help us continue to bring you our collection of dark tales, please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash wicked library. You can also help us by leaving a five-star rating and short review on Apple Podcasts. These ratings and reviews help other listeners find the show, which helps us generate revenue to ensure no one contributing to our show works for free. The Wicked Library is created by Ninth Story Studios, LLC. All rights reserved.